Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Associate Athletic Director for Student Athlete High Performance at the College of William Mary, Eric Corum. Thanks for tuning in to episode 246 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Eric on the podcast today. So Eric's been on my list for a long time. I think I just missed him when I went to the Seattle Sounders conference in 2015. I think he spoke in 2014. But always wanted to get him on the podcast and really appreciate the guys at Omega Wave for making the introduction to Eric. So in this episode, we discuss a lot around... Um, athlete monitoring and athlete readiness specifically DC potential which Eric goes into a ton of detail um, pretty early on in the episode and it sets a real good foundation for the chat we have afterwards we also discuss uh, training um, and strength when speed is the goal so our uh, focus on um, on strength training if we're actually wanting to build speed and Eric's thoughts around that and um, how he's working with Kia when I'm flat on that side of things um, and that leads into some chat around specificity etc and then we finish off with leadership and evaluation empowering athletes empowering staff and how we evaluate ourselves as coaches so really interesting chat with Eric that has been a long time coming but I'm sure you'll really enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Eric Corum. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I am delighted to welcome Eric Corum. So welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for uh, having me on. 
Absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on, mate. Really appreciate you giving up your time. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself, the career leading up to where you are, and what you're doing at the minute. Yeah, I, um, I'm originally from Dallas, Texas. Uh, I played football at Texas A&M. I got my undergraduate degree there and uh, went on, did a graduate work at the University of Arkansas. I was a graduate assistant strength conditioning coach. So I started in traditional S&C. Um, I did spend a little over 10 years in professional track and field. That's I started working with some pretty cool athletes, including Veronica Campbell-Brown. Got to work with her throughout her career. Um, traversed the United States more times than I would have liked to, but uh, worked my way up. Got to the uh, Florida State University in 2010 as the speed and nutrition coordinator, and then I was eventually named the director of sports science and football operations. And that's kind of where my career took a big turn. Um, got to spend some time in Australia with John Quinn, who's become a mentor to me, and really learn about what high performance was, where sports science was going, um, helped introduce athlete tracking to American football in 2011. And uh, we had some great results with an unbelievable coaching staff and players of Florida State. Um, took a team as a six-win team, won a conference championship, went to the Orange Bowl, and then I went to University of Kentucky as the high-performance director for football. And then uh, to the Houston Texans as the director of sports science. And uh, I worked across the entire organization there. And then um, I'm at the College of William & Mary now as the Associate Athletic Director for Student Athlete High Performance, which means that I'm responsible for the health, wellness, and performance of all 540 student athletes. So that includes sports medicine, strength conditioning, any sports science we do, sports psychology, nutrition, et cetera. Nice. So 540 athletes, how many staff are across them, including yourself? Um, we have 11 athletic trainers Currently, four athletics performance coaches. Um, we have a director of sports psychology, so that's 16. And then we have some interns and rotating graduate assistants. So that transition from pro sport to collegiate sport, I know you'd, you've you gone from collegiate sport to pro sport and then back again. What, what was that transition like, going both ways, actually? That'd be interesting to know what it was like going to the – the Texans from um, from collegiate and then come back, back to the College of William Mary? Well, um, when I went to the NFL, um, you know, football is football. So the game didn't change. Some dynamics around the game did. Um, you're just moving from working with a student athlete to a professional athlete. And I really enjoyed that transition because the pro athletes, they realize it's a job. They call you by your first name. They make more than, than most everybody in the building. But if you can solve a problem for them, uh, I found that they're, that, that you're, in, you know, you're in their back pocket. You know, it's about creating value, which I really appreciated. I like the fact that we were, I was able to explore a lot of things under my general manager. Um, unfortunately, we had a change in general management, and that's how I ended up at William & Mary. Uh, coming back to the college environment, there's some positives. It's it's really nice being on a college campus. You're working with athletes that typically don't have a huge training history, so you can kind of create that narrative for them. Um, we are an elite academic institution. It's the oldest chartered school in America, 326 years old, and we've had two presidents go here. It's considered a public Ivy, and so um, 
we have a different type of student athlete. I mean, they're incredibly intelligent. We lead the NCAA every year in graduation rate. Um, and so, you know, you really have to answer the question why for them. Uh, and I don't mind that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner and I try to hire people that are lifelong learners as well. But, uh, you know, the resources aren't the same. Uh, you have to balance, you have a lot of other things besides, you know, pro athlete, they have families and things like that, but they have money in their pockets. They have good food. They have outside resources they can tap into or in the collegiate environment. You have to consider, you know, that there's not a lot of income besides, you know, what they get maybe in their scholarship check and food. They have maybe other stressors that are going on, social stressors, or maybe living in dorms where it's not the optimal sleep condition. So you have to think a lot about a lot of things in the training process. In terms of the intelligence of these guys and girls that you're working with, how's that, I know you mentioned it a little bit there, but how's that affected how you communicate with these student athletes and how that differs from maybe the the pro game where they're obviously, like you say, they've got money in the pocket, but maybe not as intelligent as the guys that you're and girls that you're dealing with at the minute? Okay, I'm not going to say that the pro athletes aren't intelligent because they are very smart. They're, you know, they are... Um... They're experts at what they do, and I would just say here we're dealing with the top five to seven percent of um, of student athletes in the country, as far as academics are concerned. Like the average incoming freshman has an an, an A plus average. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, gosh. So, like, yeah, when you're working with a pro football player, man. They know what they are doing. You know, they, of course, of course. And I would say even in pro football, there, there's a, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, you have to gain trust because it, with the information that you collect, they want to know how is it going to be used? Is it going to affect my employment? And so I found them to be very introspective. It's just different questions you're answering. For the freshmen, it's, hey, uh, I played basketball my whole life and never lifted. So how is this going to help me? Or, you know, I got a college scholarship and I wasn't sleeping in high school. Why do I need to sleep now? The pro athlete, it's, um, hey, maybe we need to change some of your um, your habits because now you're in your early 30s and your body's not recovering as quickly. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Problem set just changes. But here, um, I've just found them to be incredibly inquisitive, wanting to understand all the little nuances of the training process. Yeah, I suppose that that's what I was getting at because I've been in a, a very similar position going from a not as high level as both the things that you're talking, both the environments that you're talking about, but going from a professional club to an environment where the the girls I was working with were were part time, but all had were, were um, doctors, mm. and teachers, um, uh, solicitors, and it's just a completely different dynamic of of how they ask the questions and the questions that they actually ask, mm-hmm. and it does keep you on your toes, serious on your toes because they're inquit like and a great word great they're, they're inquisitive mm-hmm. and they're interested because in their job they want to know what they're doing and why they're doing it and it makes no difference whether they're training or in their in their job so yeah I think that's pretty more I was getting at but the NFL guys hundred percent yeah clever dudes in what they do so yeah they know no doubt what they're that. doing they got there for a reason. And if they ask for something, you better have some data behind it. Like, <laughs> yeah. hey, why is this work? Like, I need to, like, and I love that. I love being asked to be, you know, like, to be, pro, to, for me to be a pro. You know, just don't take my word. Yeah, question me. Let's do that. Let's have a good conversation. Because then the buy-in's even better. Definitely. 
Yeah, absolutely agree. So that brings me on to one of the topics that I wanted to cover. So over the next 45 minutes, I'd like to go through the, the training readiness and the re, training, training readiness and recovery, um, some of the stuff you do in training and some leadership and evaluation at the end. But at this, talking about data, let's have a little chat around um, Omega Wave and assessing readiness and how that may differ from how you can do it in a, a pro setting and how you can assess that in a, a more collegiate setting. How's that? How's the, the training readiness protocols that you've put in place differed between the pro and the collegiate setting? And then we'll get into a few more details after that. I would say a commonality is you're, you, you can't make anybody do anything, okay? But in the NFL, from my experience, um, you like – you really can't make the athletes do anything. So what you have to do is say is provide value. Why would I want to fill out a wellness questionnaire? What, how is doing an Omega Wave assessment going to help me? Because there's a time about you know time cost associated with that. In the collegiate environment, you can make it more about this is how we do things as a team, and um, and it's kind of part of our daily operating procedure. Does that make sense? I'm never going to make an athlete do it. But it's a little bit easier to say, hey, this is just what we do as a team. And as long as it's being communicated back to the athletes that this is how we're using the information and they see change, it's a lot different. In the professional environment, I think you really got to answer that question of how is this helping me? But um, I've used Omega Wave both in college and in pro sport and have had tremendous results with the information that we get it's all from the professional standpoint, it's how are the athletes regulating themselves and what are some things they're adding on to or taking away from training. In the collegiate environment, it typically has to do with how we're manipulating practice and the inputs that we're giving them as far as physical preparation. And then usually trying to change some big bucket items like sleep or maybe a nutritional item. So let's go right back to the start and yeah. And what that what the Omega Wave test looks like, and what what were the questions that you wanted to answer, which led you to look into look into Omega Wave as a solution? Yeah. So, uh, in in there's a great quote by Smith. He says the training process because this all is about the training process. Okay. When I look at how we're developing athletes, they engage in something called the training process, and it involves the repetition of exercises designed to induce automation in the execution of motor skills and develop structural and metabolic functions that lead to increased physical performance. So when we're training an athlete, you know, what we're trying to do is to automate things. We're trying to get their, their functional systems to work in such a way that when they step on the field or go into the pool or whatever, that they are executing at a very, very high level. Well, that process is an adaptation-dependent process, as you know psychophysiological adaptation. So when we train, there is a cost to training. And you know, the younger the athlete or the less trained they are, there's a bigger fluctuation in what we call readiness, which is their physiological state. So if I take a, let's just take a real simplistic um, exercise here and say that we have a 16 year old athlete that is gonna do a five by five on squat, okay? At 75% of their one RM. And then you take a 24-year-old athlete who has a large training history and they do the same exercise. Let's say they're both rugby players. There's going to be a greater physiological cost for that 16-year-old and that 24-year-old. And so what we want to do is, is 
if you if an athlete is still adapting and they're on this downward swing of this physiological cost and then we layer in another training dosage they can't keep adapting forever and so what omega wave does is allows us to look under the hood so to speak of what's going on biologically with the athlete and so two things it takes into account one is heart rate variability which really gives you a deep dive on the autonomic nervous system and the other part is DC potential, direct current potential. And that's what um, I did my doctoral dissertation on uh, how sleep quantity and quality affects DC potential. And um, I've heard it a lot. I've actually just wrote a chapter for Jay DeMeo's uh, manual he puts out every year on this. And like, oh, it's, you know, it's black box. You know, nobody really, there's not a lot of literature. I, I had over 70 referee journal articles referenced just about DC potential alone. It's over, you know, the, the literature is over 80 years old. Um, it's been used in, uh, in psychology and, and general medicine for training of athletes. And basically what you're getting out of DC potential is you're able to look at what's called the functional state or how the body's systems are adapting to stress. And it looks at the, um, the slow regulatory systems of the brain, which is different than like delta waves and theta waves and alpha waves. And there's tons of literature. If you Google my, my dissertation, you can find it and you can look at all the, the research on it. But it is, um, it's considered one of the most constant physiological processes in the body. So it's very consistent and it only changes with stimuluses that are frequent and very strong. So for instance, heart variability is really good. But if I drink a cup of coffee or if I walk up a flight of stairs or something, like you're going to see quick responses. When you lay down and rest and then do a DC potential reading, it's very difficult to change it. Like if you were to do multiple tests in the day, um, it's 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 very constant um, uh, measurement. And so we can look at these two things and we can say this is how the athlete is adapting to training. And I'll give you an example. We had a, um, a basketball player this year. We're looking at the, I look at DC potential almost every day. And you can look at the absolute millivolt potential and you can look at the curve of the DC potential and really gather a lot of information. And we were seeing a trend that I didn't like. And I went to the coach. I'm like, hey, we need to pull this guy. And I hadn't done that before with the team yet. Coach said, okay, we looked at the data. He said, let's just have him go through warm up and then we'll pull him out. During warm up, the guy experienced vertigo. And like, in the session but we could see that that something was coming in the morning um so what we found with our research is that you know there are um optimal durations of sleep that put an athlete in an optimal state of adaptation so um Alucana developed um reference ranges in the 1980s where they found that athletes were at their best adaptability between 20 and 40 millivolts of dc potential we found between seven and a half to nine hours of sleep puts an athlete, and this was training SEC football players in season. They were sleeping between seven and a half to nine hours a night. Their DC potentials were putting them in an optimal state for adaptation. So it's, it's really, really powerful stuff. And there's great research. Have you followed what's going on at the University of Iowa at all, Rob? Um, I've heard of something, yeah. Something popped up on my Twitter, I think. Yeah, they were able to predict uh, with their short sprint events, 200 meters or less sprint performance by looking at DC potential and LNRSSD. 
And uh, this is over a four-year time frame. Quite a few uh, samples. It was, I believe it was over 100, 150 samples. And they were able to pr predict how they were going to perform in races just by looking at these two things. Um, and you're going to start seeing more and more literature coming out about this. But it's a very strong indicator. doesn't mean like it doesn't mean that you can't like in most situations, maybe your performance isn't the absolute best, but it doesn't mean that you can't go out and do something. So for instance, if your heart rate variability sucks and DC potential sucks and a bear chases after you, you're going to be <laughs> able to run. But if you have the flu and that bear chases after you and you have to evade for three hours, the cost of adaptation from that three hours is going to be a lot worse. Does that make sense? Absolutely. makes sense. And you may get pneumonia and be in the hospital. Where if you're healthy and your body's in an adaptable state, you know, you may have the crap scared out of you, but you're going to be okay. So a couple of questions off the back of that. Yeah. Um, in terms of the test itself, what's that test look like? It takes about four minutes. You put a chest strap on, uh, wet two areas of the chest of the strap where you kind of get like a V1, V6 look on the left ventricle like you would with a six lead EKG. Um, and then you put a patch on your head and your forehand. It's called the Vertex Thenar method. It was developed by Sidechev. Um, it's validated with DC um, EEG. So, like, they've done validation studies that it actually, like, using the EEG hats, like, it does measure what it's saying it measures. You lay down. Then in about four minutes, you, you basically get an understanding of how your body's adapting to stress. And my second question off the back of that is – why are more people, given the evidence that you've just presented, why are more people not utilizing this? What are the what are the drawbacks? Um, I think for a little while there, people are saying, well, there's no research on it. And now that we have things like Google Scholar, you can find Alukana and um, Bektareva. There's tons of research articles out there. So now you can start searching it, okay? There's been other validation studies that are coming out. There's a um, neuroscience, uh, Dr. Olga Kara did a really good study overseas and she was able to validate the DC potential piece. Um, and I also think it's just, let's be honest, like everyone wants to create a plan and they, they get married to that plan. And it's really, really difficult to say, you know what, I'm going to change things today. Um, we did a study. Dr. Chris Morris was my graduate assistant at University of Kentucky, and now he's the director of sports science there. And he developed a fluid periodization model that we use with our football players. And, um, you know, we had our training programs for all the athletes. Half of our team basically opted in to use Omega Wave, half didn't. We said, guys, you can use it or not. And based off of their state of readiness, we changed their training. The guys, like, guys were training right next to each other on the same platform. The guys that were using Omega Wave to create a fluid model had anywhere between 300 to 500% better improvement, things like uh, aerobic capacity, peak vertical power, in an eight-week period of time, and they did less work. Wow. And, and you can go look this up if you look up Chris Morris's dissertation. But um, I think the there's two things. One, you know, this this possibly this can't possibly be telling me what it says it's telling me. You know, it's it's too simple. Well, so is a blood pressure cuff, you know? <laughs> um, the second thing is, is, you know, these are the, this is what I do and this is how I do it. Well, uh, if that's how we thought about things, we'd never be, be driving cars. We'd still be in horse and carriage. 
you know? So I think there's a little bit of fear. And I also think that now people have more access to research and they're going, wow, okay, this really is legit. So. So in terms of the, the outputs that come off the back of this and how you're, and that was, that was a perfect scenario of two groups, one, one with it and one without it. What is the, what is the spread of, of difference um, which is going to allow you to make a change? Is it, is it, is it very, is it, is it quite sensitive? So you're easily able to, you know, say that's, that's a big enough change for us to change something Yeah. or is that quite a, is that quite a fine balance? And if so, what are you actually changing? Pardon me. That's a great question. So the platform that Omega Wave uses, they use something called windows of trainability, which make it really user-friendly for the commercial market. Okay. So they've been able to look at these different, what they call functional systems and say, okay, if DC potential is really, really low, which measures the, basically the metabolic systems, the metabolic activity of the central nervous system, then power speed activity should probably dial down. So they've done a really easy user interface for just the layperson. What I like to do is watch trends, okay? So if somebody's just having a one-off day where things are a little bit off, probably won't change anything. But if we start seeing multiple, like multiple days in a row, that's when we'll start to intervene. And typically it's a habit that the the athlete can can correct to make themselves more robust, uh, like sleep, or maybe they're not fueling themselves correctly. Um, If we start, I'll be honest, we found somebody with an inverted T wave where they found, the doctor found that there was a hole in somebody's heart. And they said, the only reason, like this person, the only way we would have figured this out is if they were on an autopsy table. Right. Oh, um, so, um, you know, I, I think it's a very simple system to use. It will take a little bit of time the deeper you dive into it to start learning some stuff. But you know what? That's what we're here for. We're here to be professionals. We're here to grow and expand our knowledge. But the, they have made it like really, really user friendly. And um, our coaches and our athletes have access to it and they can look at it. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of how we use this. I had an athlete that was a kicker. Okay. He's uh, he was from, he's from the islands. So they have a very laid back generally it was a population real laid back, cool personality. Uh, I started doing Omega wave and his DC potential was super high and uh, it was showing us uh, like psychological tension and his heart rate waking up in the morning was like 90 something beats a minute. Okay. But if you looked at him on the outside, you'd be like, this person's awesome. Like, holy chill. Then you look at the performance and some days he'd be like right on and some days he'd be shaking the ball of the other field. So we met with them. We're like, Hey, this is what we're seeing. Are you stressed out? Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We're confirming this. All right. What can we now do about it to help you? So we did things, some psychological sports, sports, psychological interventions added some things like floating to his um, regimen over a period of about six months, we were able to get things normalized and this guy's crushing it now. I mean, absolutely crushing it. He may not have gotten there if we hadn't intervened. Sometimes the only way an athlete's going to tell you something is you have to get objective information. That's their way of telling you. So are you, are you pairing this or combining this with any subjective measures Great. Train readiness. <laughs> You're crushing it, man. <laughs> yes. Uh, we have a custom algorithm developed 
where um, it's highly in one situation, I can't go into all the details, but it was highly predictive of wins and losses on the road and point differential. We could predict that with the combination of DC potential and subjective uh, measures. And so I think that you need to weight them together because there is validity to how somebody feels. Um, I always weigh the objective a little bit more. It's kind of like saying the patient comes into the doctor and they say, I feel fine, but your blood pressure is 120 over 240. Their normal may not be normal. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I do absolutely weigh what the athletes are saying, you know, but we, we combine them together and we have a custom algorithm that we use. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Eric. I hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more on the training side of things. So more on the uh, strength when speed is the goal, our desire to work on speed, but work on that in the gym when that may be best, um, the time may be best spent actually out on the track, or out on the field to develop them kind of qualities. That leads into some specificity chat. Um, effects of um, sports science on US sport and the the, the evolution uh, in that arena and then finishing off with some leadership and evaluation talk uh, coach evaluation how we how we evaluate ourselves how people in our organization evaluate us and potential ways to um, to improve them relationships but just before we do get into part two I want to say a big thanks to fatigue science for sponsoring this episode today so Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes uh, a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're going to undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. Also sponsoring the Pacey Performance Podcast today is Omega Wave. So Omega Wave is an, the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train for both the brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy levels and autonomic nervous system balance, it allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize training and then optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical practitioner to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. So this measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to their windows of trainability concept. 
So Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport, military and law enforcement agencies and are now the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So if you want to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, which is omegawave.com and on their social media channels. So one thing I want to move on to, and this is involving our, like I said before, when we were, we were um, before we were recording, our finest English uh, export, mm. um, Mr. Rugby Strength Coach, um, Kier. And it, it came up in one of his his um, Twitter comments about how, I th- I can't, he, he quoted someone that he'd been talking to and influenced by, and switching, when, when the goal was speed, switching his emphasis from a, um, a strength focus to actually a speed focus and how that had helped with the um, 40 meter time or whatever test that he was he was administering. I just want to get your thoughts on that and as a whole in terms of a, an industry, I, I suppose where people feel comfortable and strength coaches feel comfortable in the gym, in the gym environment, and maybe overemphasizing that strength element, even though speed is the is often the aim and ha- if we should be shifting that and becoming more comfortable with that speed working on speed because speed is the goal rather than falling back on the strength where we're comfortable does that make sense just yeah, to get your thoughts question. on that yeah great question so the athlete that he was talking about was an athlete he was training for the his pro day which means the nfl scouts come out to the university and he and they run a 40-yard dash and do some of these other like decathlon type events, broad jump, vertical jump. And the athlete got significantly faster and did way less volume of weightlifting than the person was used to. Okay. So in that instance, it was, it worked out well. I think um, you have to look at the position. Like, so if we're talking American football, you could translate this to other sports. You have to look at the positional demand. So uh, I think in every situation, speed wins, but for an offensive lineman, speed maybe moving laterally a foot or two and hat and hand placement as we call it to get on a block how quickly can they get into that position so in that situation where there is like a tremendous amount of force that has to be generated there's eccentric isometric grappling the the weight training is very very important if we look to if we're still talking american football and you look to the perimeter which may be more like a soccer athlete or, or international football athlete um, is strength important? Yes, but if you overemphasize it, I believe, and I have seen over time, it will make people slower. And so, yeah, like I'll just be honest. So, uh, our sprint coach here, Omar Brown, his wife is Veronica Campbell Brown. I coached him for a number of years. He's our brand new sprint coach here at William and Mary. We the the academic stress load is so intense on these students. I, I told Omar, I said, listen, when he got here, it was like less is more. We need to literally get so uncomfortable with the volume that we're placing these athletes under. They're like we're a little bit nervous. They broke four <laughs> records this year in event and and events that they you know they crushed with the same athletes they had last year. The weight room sessions were like minimal did high, you know, very good quality speed work and cut it off and everybody got faster and PR'd. So from a pure track and field standpoint, yes. Um, when you have a field sport athlete, I think there's a combination And this summer here and I are under the same impression. We're like, we want to be really almost uncomfortable with these, with these perimeter players with how much strength work we're doing because they speed will win speed will win. And so I do agree. There's a there's an extent though when 
you know, in football, you get closer and closer to the line of scrimmage where, yeah, speed's important, but it, I want to be a rock and not a BB when I hit somebody. I want to be knocking them over, not getting knocked back myself. So weight, uh, I guess impulse is what you would be talking about is really important mass and speed or mass and acceleration. But generally speaking, um, you can get by, and this is an old Charlie Francis concept, speed feeds weights. And uh, I think generally speaking, you can get by with doing a little bit more speed work, a little less in the weight room, and athletes just grow. So when you say talk about the, the track guys doing minimal strength work, what was that previously and what did it change to? Like just a bit of context around that reduction, reduction yeah. in what? I don't know exactly what okay. they did before. Yeah. Um, I would just say in season they would do – geez – as we got later and later in the year, they may hit trap bar deadlift for like 12 to 15 repetitions, uh, maybe some post chain work and that was, a, and maybe some, uh, isometric calf work. And that was about it for their lower body the entire week, but they were doing high quality sprint work. Um, and so I think it, it, it made up for it, you know, I'm, in the wintertime, we did a bit more. We did some split squat isometrics, some eccentric work, but the volume of the amount of time they spent in the weight room was very, very minimal. Um, so I don't know what it was before. I do know that their track workouts were way less because the athletes always commented like, man, we're not doing a, a ton. We're not walking off the track just like dragging our rear end off the track, you know? Yeah. So is it? Is that is that is that mentality something that has spread throughout the athletes, throughout the, all the athletes that you work with, with this newfound kind of thought process of let's get so uncomfortable because we're doing so little work no, because of the overload? I think okay, in the physical preparation realm, like ultimately the athlete that practices their skill the most, the most skilled athlete's going to win. So the athlete that's practicing their sport the most in the most adaptable environment and adaptable situation is going to get better. And so we need to have our athletes training on the pitch, on the field, in the pool more than we need them in the weight room all the time. I'm not saying they don't train, but it's like, what is the least amount we can do in the weight room to stimulate a response so we have positive adaptation so that we're not doing more harm than good, and they're able to go out, be injury-free, and practice their skill more. So a great example is our women's lacrosse team this year. The whole group was bought in, coach, performance coach, athletic trainer, and this high-performance model. They dropped their injuries by 80% this year and almost quadrupled their amount of victories on the field. Uh, the only person that was unavailable is because of a broken hand, but that was some very, you know, it started, but we, we worked all the way back to when those girls showed up in, in September and we had a high low periodization model on the field, in the weight room, uh, on low days, they were doing extensive field work on high days. It was intensive speed focus and the changes physiologic or performance KPIs in eight and a half weeks the average girl added a mile per hour under a max velocity and had 16 inch improvement in triple broad jump. I mean, it was nuts, but everything was synchronized. Their training sessions were what we thought they needed, not more than they needed. And their adaptation was ridiculous and they got better at their sport, which is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, we spoke about this briefly, and we'll we'll keep it short because I don't want to. Uh, I, I need to make sure that Kia's head fits through the the gym doors. But what <laughs> what um what impact has Kia had coming into the the program at William and Mary? Uh, he's been unbelievable. I mean, he's one. I he's one of the best problem solvers I've ever been around. Um, you know, people say, "Oh, you have to have worked in a sport before." Kier has never worked in football before. Now, granted, there's some things I've had to. Hey, no, that that ain't gonna work. You know, but his ability to just diagnose sports structure. You know, he's helped me program for basketball. We watch tape. We figure out what they have to do. And then we worked, we reverse engineer elite performance and he is top notch. Um, he's great with the athletes. He's a great communicator. He raises the level of expectation and I'm learning from him every day. And um, I'll give you an, uh, another quick example. We have a volleyball coach. We sit down. This is kind of, this is what we're doing here at William Mary. Sit down with the volleyball coach when I first got here and uh He's like, Eric, you know, this is what we do for our conditioning. And I'm like, well, why? This is our conditioning test. I said, why? He goes, well, it's what we did where I was before. I'm like, well, why do you do that? Well, it's just what we do. I was like, okay, what is the work-rest ratio in the game of volleyball? How many times do your athletes strike a ball? How many times do they change direction? And we start going through this exercise, and he starts getting – I can tell he's getting frustrated. I'm like, what's wrong? He's like, uh, are you mad? He goes, I'm pissed off at myself because I don't know the answers. This is a head coach at a Division I school. So what did he do? He went back with a stopwatch, watched film, and diagnosed all of this stuff. Okay? Now we took him through a curriculum of how to diagnose the bioenergetic, biodynamic demands of sport. And Kier helped, like Kier helped like spearhead this with this guy. He read James Smith's entire text on the governing dynamics of coaching. He's now constructing on-court practices, taking into consideration the bioenergetic demands of volleyball. The girls, you see what I'm saying? So it's been this, he has helped me, like, help these coaches learn how to problem solve their own sports. And I would, this is not a knock against sport coaches, but I would say most of them don't really understand these, these in-depth questions which govern the outcomes of their games. They're excellent at the technical, tactical piece, but if sometimes, especially in the United States, there's no curriculums for these things. It's not, it's not really their fault. And so we've been able to expose coaches to this, and it's so awesome. Once they get it, they freaking run with it. And, and it's awesome to see. So Cure's really helped instill that culture here. So how has, how has data and the sports science side of things helped with them sort of conversations is that crowbad in there or is it very much a i suppose a, a, a seeing and believing type of thing rather than producing data and reports and things like that um you talk about with our coaches here yeah with we get, getting that understanding of what the game is around is about to create them that that environment and them conditioning drills or whatever you sure. mentioned with the, with the volleyball is is Sports science a big part of that? Well, uh, if, if, if you say sports science is doing a lit review on the demands of the game, then yes. Um, you know, deconstructing your sport, if that's what you want to call, you know, the study of the sport of sports science. So, yes. Do we have a lot of data here? No. Okay. Do we have uh, one team with true GPS athlete tracking? Um, but you don't need that. It's like saying, do I need to know how to perform – 
cardiovascular surgery to understand the cardiopulmonary system. Mm-hmm. Ah, I can go pick up a textbook. Yep. So what we're trying to do is be the best problem solvers in our conference. Like it. Great answer. And by sports science, yeah, a bad wording. I didn't mean the kind of data-heavy no. side of things, whether it be athlete tracking or whatever. So, no, that's cool. Happy days. Um, one thing I want to touch on before I kind of round up, we've got 10, 15 minutes to just chat about um, leadership and evaluation. I think it's, it's what I mentioned at the start, what I'd like to finish off with. And it sounds like on the from the coach perspective, um, that you're and talking about Kier in particular, empowering him to, to do his thing. And I'd just like to have a little chat around how you enable your athletes to be able to do that as well, to empower them and, and give them the the freedom, although they are collegiate athletes, to be able to go out and, and do their thing in terms of their, you know, freedom in training um, and obviously in, in moving into competition as well. Yeah, so there's a saying that coaches coach and players play. And uh, we're not on the field. When, when in critical situations, they have to be able to diagnose and think rapidly to solve emerging problems. And so one of the things I talk to the recruits about when they come in is I want them to learn to own the training process. So I believe that if you empower athletes with the knowledge and information that they need, they are intelligent enough because they, if they really love their sport, that they can apply that information to their situation to put themselves in the best position possible. I am not a believer that athletes are dumb or stupid. They're usually some of the best problem solvers we know. And um, I believe in any situation that they should be empowered. Um, sometimes they're just not aware, and so you have to make them aware. But um, like if an athlete comes to us and says, hey, this exercise is causing – me to have stiffness and tightness and we've done it for a while we're like all right let's go to plan b plan c plan d um we don't create an environment which is you know people are like oh you're making your athletes soft no we can actually demand more and have tougher training scenarios when they're more adaptable um but you know i i i'm with you 100 i want the athletes to be empowered on game day they don't need me you will never see one of my athletic performance coaches jumping up and down on a sideline waving a towel. You know, you don't see that in pro football, do you? No. No. You see professional athletes doing their job. When our athletes step on the field, you know the, you know the saying, we don't rise to the level of our expectations, we fall to the level of our training. That is truly how we live, breathe, eat here, is that, Our training is going to be so specific and you are going to understand what's going on and you are going to be part of this process and we're going to create this mindset of adaptability so that when you step on the field, you are confident in your ability to face whatever comes up. And it may take a period of time, but those are the best teams when the team takes it over. And um, ultimately, over time, as these, we have kind of like a, we have a tiered approach so as the athletes, you know, year three and year four in our program, we want them to have more ownership in the training process. What works for you? You're already strong enough. You're fast enough. What do you feel like you need to go to the next level? You know what I'm saying? So we're creating this really reflective, inquisitive athlete. So what, is, what does that process look like, Eric? Is that just a conversation? Is that pulling them guys aside? Is that a separate meeting with the, the older guys that are 
you know, coming to the final year with you? How, what's that look like? We're not there yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We have um, we got like one or two football players that are seniors. Um, you know, we only started them with with them in January with the football team, and they're just like you know they're really really good athletes. They're strong enough. You know, all these like key performance indicators are off the charts. So we're like, look, we're going to do minimal volume in the weight room. We're going to use some velocity-based training, get some feedback from you. We're going to put an Omega Wave on you because, you know, we need to know exactly what's going on and how you're adapting. The young athlete that just steps in the door, like they don't know what they don't know. And so um, we really go with a minimal effective dose type of strategy. We found that to be very effective. So the idea is over time is once we kind of hit maybe some KPIs for the sport and we're like, okay, this person is powerful enough or strong enough or exhibiting these vital motor abilities the way we think they should for a collegiate athlete. Then we go, okay, let's get, let's, let's, let's now have that conversation to give the athletes a little more um, buy-in. So I got two senior basketball players and I've told them already, like, you're going to be doing a program similar to everybody else, but you're going to be doing a lot more resting, way, way less sets because you have more mileage on your legs. And I want you to spend more time on the court than in here. So it's a, it, to them, like, okay, makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I just want to f- finish off with a couple of um, topics that are, I suppose, hot topics at the minute. And one was, I think, gets revisited again and again and again. And it's about coach. And this is, this be really interesting coming from someone of your um, standing at, at William & Mary and how coaches look and – the importance of the, like, it was it was Mike Boyle who brought it up, and I think it had been brought up again and again. Um, actually, looking the part and how important that is in terms of recruitment of a coach, and I suppose the longevity of a coach, how they actually look in when they stand in front of their athletes. To you, as someone who's employing coaches, how important is that? Ah, uh, wow, jeez. I hope I don't get into an HR situation. Here. <laughs> um. I think it's important that you're physically fit. Yeah. Do yeah. you need to be a bodybuilder? No. Maybe you enjoy swimming and biking and you're a strength coach. So that's fine. Um, I do I, – I don't think it's the right signal if you're morbidly obese and you're telling athletes how to take care of their bodies. Um, just like when I go into a doctor and he's telling me I need to do X, Y, and Z, and I, I can tell that person has not been taking care of themselves. Yeah. You have that question in the back of your mind, like, do they take their own advice? <laughs> um, whether we like it or not, I, you know, okay. For instance, in the political realm, you know, most politicians, their presidents of the United States are a certain height. They have a certain, uh, you know, color hair. There's things like you can look back on and go, there's trends over time in the business world. You know, a a bigger presence means a lot more. And I I hate that, but it's, it's our minds go in that direction unconsciously. Um, I hope people get um, evaluated more on what they say rather than how they look. So in the American sport culture, I think you're seeing a shift from the shaved head, goatee, dip in the mouth coach to somebody that's um, fit, that's inquisitive, that asks the right questions and isn't afraid. I will say this, in the college sporting world, it's very difficult if you're not a juice guy. 
um, or gal. Explain juice guy to those listening uh, from the UK. Jumping up and down, the athletes run, come in the weight room, you're screaming and hollering and all this baloney. And yeah, it's like an alter ego. It's like you're a cartoon, you know? Um, It's unhealthy. It's unrealistic. Now, do you need to bring energy to the situation? 100%. But let me ask you a question. Are you on the field when it matters most? No. Your butt is on the sideline. It goes back to recruiting. Are you uh, evaluating the psychological components or the psychological things that are most important in the recruiting process? Are these athletes, do they have a growth mindset? Are they good teammates? Are they self-motivated? Are they intrinsically motivated? Like who are you bringing in the door? You know, Jimmy Radcliffe was the head, was the strength coach at Oregon for the longest time. I don't know if he'd be able to step in now and get a head job like he had for years at Oregon, did an amazing job. He's not the tallest guy. He's lean, doesn't say a whole lot, got tremendous results there. Okay. I don't know if he'd be able to survive in the com- in the current culture of you have to jump on and down and be crazy. And I've actually had coaches tell me, like, we're looking across the game at an opposing sideline, and they got this guy jumping up and down. He's got the athletes swaying back and forth and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, have you watched pro football lately? <laughs> that Those type of shenanigans are not happening. You think Bill Belichick is asking for that or Bill Parcells? No. Freaking do your job and do it at a very high level and show up ready to go. That is your responsibility. So I think it's difficult now. So that brings me on to my last question. It tees me up nicely, that actually. Coach evaluation. And we spoke about Keir and what a great job he's doing, but we'll go over that again because we've had enough of that. Um, in terms of a, um, an associate athletic director, how are you evaluating the coaches that are, are working day-to-day with the athletes that, um, that go to your, your university? Yeah, so Is it, yeah. Go on. No, go on. It's a, it's a great question. Um, you have to have, so we have a culture here, you know, we have our high performance culture that we're trying to teach the athletes. We have a culture within our high performance department of how we want to treat each other. Um, some of those things like we're going to innovate between the lines. We're going to attack every day. We're going to deliver results, no vampires. You know, we're going to elevate each other with how we talk and communicate. So there's two parts. I want to look at how they're doing their job. It's the job itself. Are they able to design training programs that meet the biodynamic and bioenergetic uh, construct of their sport? Are they fitting in with the culture of the individual team? Are they helping to um, push the values of their coach down to the athletes? Um, And then how are they as a teammate within our high performance environment? That also goes to sports medicine staff as well. And so um, those are the things that I look at. Um, and here has a model that we operate under, you know, I've given him the reins on that. You know, this is how we're going to do things. Um, as far as a model for how we train the athletes, are you actually fitting within that model? Um, it gives you a lot of freedom as far as your coaching, but are you fitting the model? Um, and then, you know, how are they as people? Are we, are we contributing to the environment? Are you a great teammate? Are you pushing us forward? Are you looking for ways to make us better? Those are the things that I'm evaluating. Is that difficult? All the all points that you've made there, is that difficult for the people above you who maybe don't have the finger on the pulse in terms of 
the nuances of what makes a good coach, which is all them things that you've just said? Mm. Um, I think, okay, so a great administrator, a great owner, let's say in our, in our example, an athletic director or in the NFL, a general manager, head coach, uh, owner, they have to trust once they hire somebody, if they, if they say, okay, we're going to put our confidence in this person that they know what they're doing from a technical standpoint. They have to trust that. Now, I do believe it is their responsibility, general uh, responsibility. General Wesley Clark said, I, I got to hear him speak recently, that you need to understand some of the technical things that are happening with the people below you in their roles. But at some point, you've got to trust that if you've hired them, if you believe they're the best person for the job, technically they know what they're doing, but you can evaluate them on the culture that you have defined. And if you say that this is something that we value, accountability, are there behaviors lining up with the values that you have uh, instilled in your culture? If not, that is easily um, um, evaluated. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Well, anyone that wants to know a little bit more about you, about the work you're doing, um, has any questions, what's the best place for people to get in contact, Eric? Uh, Instagram. They can send me a, uh, an Instagram message if they uh, – if they want to, uh, and, and then I can give my email address from there. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. Uh, I really appreciate you and what you're doing and, and bringing great people on here and, and putting out great information. It's a real service to our industry. Thank you very much. What's your, um, what's your Instagram handle, Eric? I think it's just Eric Corum, E-R-I-K-K-O-R-E-M. Easy as that. Yeah. Same as your, your Twitter is that as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Straightforward. Absolutely. Got in there first against the, all the rest of the Eric Corums in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eric, thank you very much for your for your time, first yeah. off, because I know you're a very busy man. So, uh, and I appreciate you obviously sharing your experiences, your knowledge um, on the podcast. So thank you very much. You got it. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. See you later. See you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 246 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Eric. So like I've said a couple of times, it's been a long time coming. Glad to get him, finally get him on the show and have a little chat about his past experiences and obviously his um, expertise when it comes to athlete readiness and DC potential. So also big thanks to I Measure You, Hawking Dynamics, Fatigue Science and Omega Wave for sponsoring this episode today. So thanks very much for, for your support, continued support. And if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player, make sure you do it now. So every Thursday morning, UK time, you'll get an expert and their opinions, their experience, their knowledge delivered onto your phone for free. So thanks for your support again and chat to you next week.